0: to the worship team this morning as well thank you guys so much I know that you guys work hard and get that stuff ready in your own minds and hearts and stuff doesn't sound that good if you're not prepared so thank you guys and you can be seated yes you guys were already being seated y'all are like man it's a holiday week and I ain't standing no more than I got to all right well good morning church body it's good to see you guys here how are we all doing Awesome. Thank you for coming out on a holiday weekend. This is definitely the Lord's Day and it doesn't change, but I know that it's a little harder to get yourself going because sometimes doing nothing for the entire weekend, well, you know how that can make you feel, good, bad, or, you know, whatever. But good choice coming out today because I promise you're going to leave knowing that you've been in the house of the Lord, and you're going to leave knowing that we've gathered around God's word, and I believe God's presence is going to be here. We're continuing lion-hearted. Today is officially part number four, if you include our time that we shared with Jim Kilgore. And uh, yes, I'm excited about this. I hope you are excited. There's a book on Audible that I've kind of been promoting. A few of you guys have actually even joined Audible, believe it or not, and uh, jumped on there got the book, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. My wife, I don't know if I should say this because she's a librarian and she's all about that copyright business. She's listening to my copy of the book, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. And so, uh, yeah, there's a handful of us that are going through this, and it's not too late if you're interested. As I wrote on here, it's only five hours long, but it is very well-rated, very interesting, very encouraging, and helps you to see some things in a very, very different way. And we talked last week a little bit, well, actually, we talked in the first week of the big idea being this, it's just basically something very simple, because we sometimes can kind of wonder exactly what success is, but that big idea from week number one, it's the next slide, if you don't mind. success is to do the best I can with what I have, where I am. I had those, but I wasn't sure I was gonna get them in the right order. I didn't wanna confuse you. So success is to do the best that I can with what I have, where I am. And I believe that is true for all of us. So I encourage you to make a decision It doesn't have to be something as dramatic, thank God, as chasing a lion down into a pit on a snowy day, but it should be something where we are attempting something for God that is a little bit out of our comfort zone. And last week, we talked a little bit about how you share uh, that half of learning is learning and the other half is learning of unlearning, you know, so to speak, how many times we've learned things, including our fears. Truth is, is that they tell us that we were only born with two fears, but there are literally hundreds of phobias. And so even if we don't even talk about things that we're not exactly phobic about, we live our lives in ways that are kind of ruled by our fears oftentimes. And so we just want to be reminded that God is encouraging us to live above that and beyond those things. And then our one to remember, it is that God has created us to do good works. It's from the book of Ephesians. It's our one to remember that passage of scripture that you can memorize and put up there uh, in your mind and say, okay, I'm going to memorize this over the next few weeks. For we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So very quickly, I want to kind of roll back into the passage of scripture that Eric shared with you from John chapter 2. You may or may not realize it, but John chapter 2 has Jesus changing the water into wine. And when he does that, he officially becomes a public figure. Basically, before this time, Jesus is known to be a a good man, a holy man, but he's known as the carpenter from Nazareth, more so than Jesus the Christ, or Jesus the healer, or Jesus the miracle worker, that he becomes known whenever he actually performs his first miracle, and this is his very first miracle. In John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, you might have read that, and there may have been some things that kind of jumped out to you, because... I ain't going to lie. Now, if you want to be biblical in my house where I grew up, it's a really good thing. But I promise you that I could not do what Jesus did. I could not say to my mom, woman, no, I didn't get to do that. That was biblical, but that was biblical for Jesus, not for Randy. Can I get an amen for that? I mean, no. I could do that if I wanted to lose all of my teeth very quickly, have a red mark across my face. My, My mother's a saint. Don't, you, I, I, don't slander her in your mind. She's a wonderful woman. She would have never done that. But you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Jesus says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother says to him, they have no more wine. And Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? Now, I want to pump the brakes here real quick because we're going to read this passage. And I know that there are at least three things that I need to make sure that you get when we read this scripture. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. And if you're reading that in the NIV, you'll see that little thing that I left in there that says A, A, the Greek for woman does not denote any disrespect. (laughs) Because in our world, I promise, I don't get to refer to my mom. You don't get to refer to your mom as woman. No, but in that time, it was very good. As a matter of fact, you can go on to this next slide. This is something to learn. The word woman in this way in the Greek, it sounds harsh, but this is how Odysseus referred to his beloved wife Penelope, written by Homer. You guys know that you had to read Homer back in the day. Y'all know what I'm talking—the Iliad and the Odyssey. Okay, so Odysseus referred to his beloved wife, and this is how Augustus referred to Cleopatra. And I, I would love to know exactly what Cleopatra looked like because there was said to be incredible respect for her and for her beauty—not just her power, but also her beauty—and. Uh, Augustus was amazed at this woman and he referred to her in the same way when he was writing. It's almost like the equivalent of my lady or something like that in our modern world. It's the same as when Christ was on the cross. Do you remember as Jesus was hanging on the cross he said to John who was standing there and wrote this gospel, he said behold your mother and woman, behold your son. So we know that this is not a woman, it's a woman in this kind-hearted, loving, gentle way, my, my, my wonderful woman, my lady, this is your son, son, this is now your mother. And so we know this. Now let's go to this next slide and we see this other thing to learn. I've actually got three today, which I normally have two, but three today. The words translated, why do you involve me also sound harsh, but this is actually an everyday phrase in Greek, which was literally, what have I to do with you? Now, what that means in when it's spoken like this, it is also meant, hey, don't mean to give it another thought. I'm going to take care of this. I've got this. Don't worry about it. It's in my hands now. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. What do I have to do with you? But that's the common, you, you guys know what I'm saying, right? Sometimes the things that we say are not literally translated and so sometimes the bible scriptures are really having a hard time of doing it exactly translated versus what it actually tends to mean and so sometimes you'll see that in this scripture and in this one specifically let's go to this next thing to learn and you might have checked this out when he says my time has not yet come in saying that jesus is not unsure of the plan of god jesus spent his whole ministry anticipating his time would not come into his final week you can go back and read all the different passages in the scriptures especially in the gospels and up until the very last week of his life jesus does not say my time has come but he refers to god's timeline And how that begins when he becomes known. In other words, what Jesus is saying is if I'm about to do what you ask, just know that things will never ever be the same. If everybody knows that I'm Jesus who can do miraculous things, guess what they are going to want to see every single time they walk around me? Jesus, do a miracle. Hey, Jesus, do a miracle. We'd love for you to see that, you know. I'd love to see that in person. I heard all about Jesus, do a miracle. And then when you don't do, oh, just Jesus being Jesus, you know. He didn't do no miracle today. Oh, you know. I mean, that's got to be frustrating, right? I mean, not that any of us would understand, but you can kind of understand, I don't know if you've ever had that experience where somebody has an expectation of you and you, hey, do that thing that you do that I like so much. And it just gets to be where you're like, I don't want to be that person that just does one thing in your mind or in your heart. And Jesus, even later in his passages of scripture that are speaking to his disciples, he says, I didn't come to do miracles. I came to teach about God. And actually you can go to this next slide and it shows us a little bit of an insight in John chapter six, verse one and two. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore, the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias and a great crowd of people followed him. Why? Because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. In other words, everybody was chasing after him and saying, Jesus, do a miracle. That's what they're looking for. And that wasn't why Jesus wanted to be there. All right, so very quickly, I want to put a pin in this and then I want to talk about something that happened in the Old Testament and if you guys will stick with me for just a quick second I'm going to bring the two of them together in just one moment. So if you look back in the book of 2nd Kings, Mark Batterson refers to this in his book, but in 2nd Kings chapter 6 verse 4b through 6 the company of prophets went to the Jordan and they began to cut down trees, and as one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. "Oh no, my Lord," he's crying out to Elisha, "It was a borrowed axe head. And then the man of God, that is Elisha, asked, "Where did it fall?" And then he showed him the place where it was, And Elijah, Elisha, excuse me, cut a stick, threw it there, and the iron began to float. Now, that's crazy, right? This is clearly a miracle, a God thing, a supernatural thing. Now, let me just ask a quick question of you, and let's kind of go back to where we were a minute ago, and then we'll read a quote that ties the two together. I don't know if you've ever done this or not, but when you're reading scripture, have you ever gone, I wonder why he did that? I wonder why he said that. I wonder why the timing was in that way rather than in some other. It's a very interesting thing to ask yourself when you ask the question, why did Jesus choose to let the water being turned into wine be his first miracle? Now, okay, for a minute, I'm just going to pretend it's Randy and not Pastor Randy, okay? For a minute, I'm just going to pretend I'm Pastor, or not Pastor Randy, but just Randy. And just Randy wants to know, why didn't you come out with like raising the dead? I mean, come out with your best Thing that you do, like do that first. And everybody's going to be like brrr, hair on fire. And then plus he can also turn water to wine and all these other things. I'd be blown away. I almost feel like water to wine for this little wedding in Cana is not exactly worthy of it being his very first miracle. Do, okay. I'm not going to hold you responsible. I'm not going to take any pictures. Do any of you guys understand what I'm saying? It's like, this is not his most impressive miracle. He didn't heal the eyes of the blind. He didn't make a lame man walk. He he just kind of did what needed to be done in that moment. But can I just say something? And this is where I think maybe we might need to see God in a different way than we've ever seen him. It's a beautiful quote from Mark Batterson, and I'm going to share it with you. Here's what he says. This reveals something about God. God cares about wedding receptions and borrowed axe heads. God is great not just because nothing is too big for him, but God is great because nothing is too small for him either. I'm going to say that last part again in the big idea, and then I'm going to ask you guys to join me. It's pretty close to what he says, so let's, let's take the next slide. This is the big idea. God is great because nothing is too big for him, and nothing is too small for him either. Now, would you guys join me as we say that? God is great because nothing is too big for him and nothing is too small for him either. Here's what I mean and here's how this looks in your life and mine. I'm not gonna bother God with that. I mean, like this is not, hey, somebody's life is on the line because they're incredibly sick. This is not, hey, this is a big deal and if this doesn't come through, I don't know what's gonna happen. This is, hey, they're out of wine, and it's going to be an embarrassment to their family if somebody doesn't intervene, and Christ is like, I got it. I can do that. And I don't know about you, I, I love that God can show up in ways that blow my mind, but I almost feel like God's supposed to do that because he's God, You know, like, like, yeah, of course God can do stuff that blows my mind, but he can also choose to do stuff that doesn't blow my mind, but is still like for me, powerfully reminding me that God cares about not just the big things, but also the small things. God is not just saying, man, Randy, don't bother me. Can you call me when it's worthy of me? (laughs) No, he says, Everything is important to me. Whether it's an axe, flo- an axe floating in the water because it was borrowed, something small, something minor like that, something like the the, the water turned into wine, so a family in his hometown wouldn't be embarrassed. In so many ways, we need to be reminded that we need to be asking God for anything and everything that comes to our mind, not just because we're greedy little kids, but because God wants to be involved in every part of our life, not just the big stuff. If you guys understand where I'm kind of going with this, can y'all give me an amen real quick? Here's the deal. The truth is, is that we trust him in the big things and ignore him in the small ones sometimes. And so for most of us, that's why God feels like something we do, not a part of who we are. God is a resource, not our source. The truth of the matter is, is that God, when he becomes central to our lives, life takes on a different dynamic and all the stuff that that you and I thought mattered a lot seems to kind of fade into the background. You know, that, that whole song that we love, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. I mean, everything fades when compared to knowing that God is at movement in your life. And let's be honest, let's be honest. There are true times in our lives where it feels like God is with me, God is with me. I keep seeing God moving and showing up and doing small things and big things, medium-sized things and larger things. Like, he keeps showing up. And then there are other seasons in our life where it just feels like no matter what, we can't get our prayers to go any higher than the ceiling above our head. And it is very, very different to live that first way Versus that other it is so much more enlivening and making you feel alive than the other And so I just encourage you if you have drifted from God If you have gotten to the place where it feels like the prayers don't make it any higher than the ceiling and God's not answering Usually the one who moved ain't God. Sorry. That's just the truth Usually the one who moved is you and is me And so if we've moved man, the great news is is that God is the God who says you can come back. All it takes is one turn. You repent and turn to me, and I am ready to receive you. It doesn't take away the consequences, but he's not, well, I'll give you a minute. <laughs> he's not playing the stiff arm game. He's not giving you the Heisman Trophy. Stay away. No, no, that's not God. God is welcoming us back. It doesn't remove all the consequences of drifting from him, doing the wrong things. But it does bring us back into fellowship and put us where he is again at work in our lives. Now, I have a question or two that I just wanted to kind of share with you. The question or two is, why is the first on a thing that's so frivolous as a wedding trip up that was so small? That's one of my questions. The other one of my questions is, why these people? Like, what made them deserving of this miracle they, we don't even know their names. We don't know who they are. They don't, you know, claim to be members of Christ's family. Why did he show up and do these things? Here's what I want to share with you. Here's an answer or two. First one. Why are the first thing on a, such a frivolous thing as a wedding that was so small, I'd say that it is only small and frivolous if it's not your wedding, right? Isn't that true? Did you guys know the difference between a major surgery and a minor surgery? I don't know if you guys knew this, but they've figured this out. A major surgery and a minor surgery are differentiated in this way. A minor surgery is one that's happening to you, and a major surgery is one that's happening to me. Right? I've prayed with you guys on some of your, you know, on some of your bedsides. I want to do that. I want to be there. Like, because you know what I know? I know that when I was going under for the first time, I was like, Lord, if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Because I didn't know. I also didn't know what they do to me while I was out and what pictures they might take when they were doing to me while they, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's weird. You don't want that, that 10, 9, 8, and you're out. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Any of y'all been on anesthesia before? That's weird. Did any of y'all make it past seven? Any of you make it past seven? Exactly, you did not, no. All right, so here's the deal. It's only small if it ain't your thing. So when you're praying about stuff, here's what is wonderful, and all kidding aside, here is what is awesome, that God knows your heart, and he knows how important stuff is to you. Doesn't mean he gives you everything that you ask for, He only gives you those things which bring you into the best place for his plan, for your life, and for the plan of the lives of those around you. But here's what's beautiful. He's never going to make you feel stupid for asking about something that is important to you. He knows you. He gets you. You are his child. And you know what? You have children. You know exactly what I'm talking about. When your kids do something stupid, you're like, "Mm," they don't understand yet, but I'm here for them. I'm here with them. I want to help them to grow. I want to help them keep moving. And you know what? It's a big deal to them right now. And so I'm not going to pretend it isn't a big deal. Isn't this good? Isn't this good about our God? So it's only something small or frivolous if it ain't yours. I did a wedding the other day. And you know what my friend said? He he got on the mic and he said, he was giving his daughter away. And they paid for the wedding. He said, welcome to the most expensive night of my life. (laughs) I was like... As a man who has paid for one wedding and has two more, amen. And I didn't even have to pay for the preacher. So anyway, yeah, it's expensive. (laughs) An answer or two, why is the first thing on a thing that's so frivolous? It's only frivolous and small if it ain't yours. The second thing is this, another answer or two. Who are these people? Why did they receive this miracle? Why in the world were they worthy of this? I love it that we don't know these people's names. Because all matter and all matters matter. Now, that is not a typo. I want you to read that again. Everyone matters. All of us matter. And all that matters to us matters to him. So all matter and all matters matter. You all understand what I'm saying? It's not too big. It's not too small. He's God. And can I just remind you of something? The incredible thing about God, who is so incredibly powerful, the word that we use, the theological word is omnipotent, omnipotent, all-powerful. If he's all-powerful, it ain't going to drain him to answer your prayer and mine at the same time, even if they're both big things at the same time. Everybody matters, and every matter that matters to you matters to God, God is great, not because he can do all the things that are too big, but he has the audacity and the audacious love to show up in his kids' lives in little bitty rinky-dink things that don't matter to anybody except for me. And yet when he does, I'm blown away. Like, why am I worthy of any of that kind of attention? Can I get an amen? Amen? All right, so very quickly... Here's some examples of small requests, and we're going to keep moving pretty quick. Some small requests, your financial situation, whether that's long-term, short-term, your internal feelings, your internal mindset, your frustrations, whether that be with your relationships or, or with your kids, your daily frustrations, that means work drama, that means all this other stuff, all the things that are going wrong at your house, you know, the things that you are frustrated, ah, that broke down too, oh, come on, you know. All of these little daily frustrations, that happen in our lives. God is worried about those things. Now, very quickly, we go back to Matthew chapter 14. This is where we were last week as Jesus tells Peter, hey, if you want to come onto the water, come on ahead. Like I'm good with it. Go ahead and step out of that boat and come see me. He says to Peter, come. And when he got out, he started walking on the water. If you don't know, let me give you a little bit of an idea. If you didn't catch this last week, this happens right after Jesus has fed the 5,000. And I shared with you guys last week the, the church of the multiplication, which is not something for the math challenge to be worried about. The church of the multiplication, actually, there's a picture here, and then there's another picture right after it. So there's the inside of the church, and then you can look at the floor The loaves and the fish that Jesus multiplied. And do you guys see what's in the very middle right there? Do you all know what that is? I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you of something. Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. But he didn't just be like, "Whew! take this last little morsel. I hope it stretches. Do you all Remember? What did he tell the disciples? He said, get the baskets, go and pick up what's left. And what did they do? They returned with 12 baskets full of the leftovers. Do any of y'all like leftovers or is it just me? I, I mean, I've already told my wife, if it's in white styrofoam, it is absolutely my favorite outfit. I can't be re, you know held responsible. I eat leftovers like you would not believe. I'm glad none of my family is actually here to hear me admit this, but I love leftovers. And isn't it interesting that Jesus says, I've done it so abundantly that I didn't even have to do it in the first place. The feeding of the 5,000 that shows up in all four of the gospels, one of the few stories that shows up in all four gospels is one that he didn't really need to do He just looked at the people that were around and said, you know what? They've been with me all morning. I want to give them something to eat. And his disciples are like, Jesus, what are you talking about? There's nobody here that can do this. We have five loaves, two fish, thousands and thousands of people. It ain't happening. Send them away. And Jesus says, nah, I'm going to do this for them. And then he does it and he does it over and abundantly. He pours out a blessing that isn't just enough for everybody to have all they want. But then he goes on and he says, now go collect the baskets with all those leftovers. And they do that and there's 12 baskets full of leftovers. You know what this reminds me? Let's go to this next slide. This is a great passage of scripture that you can see. Let's go to this next slide. Oh, (laughs) yeah. When God made my grandchildren, he was just showing off, right? It's just God do? and and when God made me, he said, ta-da. Now, the weirdest thing of this picture is that I actually sleep in a onesie that is just like that. It is the weirdest thing. I literally have two of them, so every night it's the same. Shelly bought them both for me. You guys believe me? Ephesians chapter 3. This is where I thought we were going. Yes, I got confused. This is where I thought we were going. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Like, I love this first part. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. Have any of you had that experience? where God showed up and did something that you never saw coming and you never could have dreamed that it would be that good and yet there it was. Isn't it amazing how God shows up and does immeasurably more. He's he's, he's poured out the blessing and there's even leftover blessings. There's stuff that you can take away and go, he could have stopped here and I'd have been overly happy. I'd have been overjoyed but he kept going. God... Is good. And and so for that, we just need to remember that God's at work. And if we will continue to seek His face, He's able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or even imagine. And that's a lot. God is able to show up in amazing ways. Now, very quickly, don't miss this. And then we're going to kind of come to a close. Don't miss this. God is not a cosmic cop, He's a good father who wants what is best for the children that He loves. For those of you who don't know, I have a daughter that is actually going to school up in the Michigan area. That's my oldest daughter, Tori. She's here in and out when she can be, but she is actually going to school up there. And because she was going to be going for such a long time, she bought a house. So it's a really huge blessing. She works her tail off uh, and really very, very proud of her. She bought herself a little town home that she owns. And she had saved up for years and years to put down the down payment, all of this stuff. I'm really proud of her. And I don't know if any of you guys can identify with this, but have you ever bought a house and every dime that you could afford went on the house and you had nothing to fill the rooms that you just bought? Can I get an amen, right? I mean, we've been there, right? We've all been there. I was there when I moved to Houston. I was like, man, I I could probably do with three less rooms because this is going to end up costing me. I got nothing for any of these three rooms. So here's what I know. I'm her dad and I'm looking at what she needs and I'm like, that girl needs a sound bar. Hello, Amazon, click, 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 click. And then Shelly's like, who bought a sound bar? And I'm like, uh, it's just you and me, babe. If it wasn't you, you already know the answer to that question, I bought the sound bar. She's like, well, where is it? I was like, it got delivered to Tories yesterday. And she's like, look, just because she's got place for it all doesn't mean you got to fill it all. We can't afford to put some of this stuff in our own home. You're putting it in your daughter's home. What's going on with that? I would just say that if you as a parent can identify, even the slightest, and maybe you're better than I am and you don't do too much of that. If you're a good parent, you understand the want and the desire to give your kids I'm not saying that it is best to give your kids everything that they could ever hope or dream for because I don't think that's the best way to raise a good kid. But you probably have that leaning and that urge and say, I got to figure out the right way. But if I could do it and it wouldn't ruin them and spoil them, I'd do it all because I just love my kids and I want them to have what is good in their life. Man, that is God. God. Every bit of that that resides in me came from the Father that created me. It's not about me. It's about what he stirs up within us as parents. Every time we reflect his goodness and his grace, that's God's seed within us that is showing itself. It is him trying to be a blessing, and every bit that you can identify, that's the good father who wants what is best for all of his children, including you and me. He's not some cosmic cop going, no, 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 I don't want to give you too much. He says, no, I want to give you abundantly, immeasurably. you got to be ready, but yet I want to give this to you because it will be a blessing and bless through you. All right, so very quickly, a question that I have to ask for you. And then we're going to do a little different at the very end. We're going to do a little bit of a different kind of um, ending today. So hang with me. The big question, do you consistently hesitate to speak to God authentically about the small things in your life? Do you guys understand what I'm saying there? And when I say authentically, what I mean is, have you kind of bought into that lie that you don't say that to God? You don't say those things or ask those things to God because you know God's got more on his mind than these small things in your little trivial area of life. If that is true, you know what I'm gonna tell you? I'm gonna tell you that you're not as close to God as you can be. And I'm gonna tell you that you probably tend to see God and your relationship with him as something that you do not as something that you are. You don't see yourself as a child of God. You see yourself as a, as a person who's relying on God to save his soul, but not somebody who feels the warmth and the presence of God every single day of their life. And that's available. I'm not talking about, man, you got to be a monk, you got to wear a robe. I'm not talking about you got to move away, sell everything you got. I'm talking about if you just get aware that God is always with you and that there is nothing too small, you start pouring the stuff out and you're like, Lord, man, that thing that happened today between that person and me, help me to see it right. And Lord, right now, I ain't going to lie. I think it's all them. I think the blame pie goes 90% them and maybe 7% me and 3% my boss, right? That's how I feel. But Lord, help me to see what's really going on. And then maybe tomorrow you see it a little different. But this is a conversation between God changing your heart and you being willing enough to take something small to him. You know, there's a, a, an old thing about a guy who once said, you know, as he was talking with his wife, his wife said, Man, I, I'm leaving. It's like, Why would you leave me? You got everything you ever wanted. And she said, What are you talking about? She said, We've been married for 30 years. And literally, I have not heard you say one single time that you loved me since the day that we got married in front of the church and all of those people. You proclaimed your love for me that day. You haven't said it a single time since. And the man looked at her and he said, Because I ain't changed my mind. I didn't realize I needed to keep you updated on everything. Come on. We don't do relationships that way. We don't. We engage. We engage with God. We don't say, I'll see you in a week. We engage with him. and We bring, Lord, help me in this situation. I need your help. And then the small things start leading to God moving in big ways in your life. It's so important. Here's how you apply this message very quickly. You apply this message this week. Choose to pray and move in that area that is too small for God. Just begin to move in those small areas. It doesn't have to be one. It can be many. But just begin to move in those areas and say, you know what, Lord, have your way in that small area. It's not going to change the world. It's not going to change everything. But it's important enough to me to mention, would you please help me in that situation? It's a funny thing how God puts peace and peace and peace and peace in place and then finally clicks the one final piece and everything click, 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 click makes sense. It's an amazing thing that God works in the small things first, usually, and then in the big things. And I would encourage us as His people to never cease to see how important it is to give Him the small things so that we are confident that he continually will show up in the big ones that matter so much. Now, I've been sharing with you guys about this book. I've wanted to just actually play an excerpt. You know that I do the audiobook thing. That's something that I have consistently done. And this is the name of the book again, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day by Mark Batterson. He is actually the senior pastor of a of a church near Capitol Hill in Washington D.C. and Man, Lord knows we need a little bit more of a Christian influence in Washington, D.C. Can I get an amen? Right? This is what we need. He is there and he is doing a great work. And he tells a story about how their church has been impacting the community. And what's very interesting is, is that God put a lot of small things in place and then suddenly it all kind of came together in an amazing way. It's about a three, three and a half minute segment. I think it'll be a blessing to you. So check it out and... Take
1: a listen. When National Community Church was just getting off the ground, we started praying a ridiculous prayer. We prayed that God would give us a piece of property half a block from Union Station. At the time, it was a graffiti-covered nuisance property. Actually, in its heyday, it was used as a crack house. But I could envision a first-class, fully operational coffee house on that corner. So we started praying I did prayer walks around the property, we laid hands on the building, and I prayed for it every time I walked by it. It was a ridiculous prayer for a number of reasons. First of all, we couldn't afford it. The original asking price was one million dollars, and we didn't have the attendance or giving to finance that kind of dream eight years ago. Secondly, churches build churches. They don't typically build coffee houses. Plus, we had zero experience in the coffeehouse business. And finally, the owners were courting Starbucks. The odds were definitely stacked against us. I still remember my first phone call to the owners of the property. It felt foolish even calling them. I felt awkward. I felt nervous. I felt young. And I had no idea what to say. We really had no business pursuing the property, but we dared to dream a God-sized dream. And six years after praying a ridiculous prayer, we purchased Lot 109 and Square 754 in the District of Columbia. The entire process was so full of divine interventions that we named the coffee house Ebenezer's, which means, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. That ridiculous prayer is now the largest coffee house in Washington, D.C., it is also one of the nicest and busiest. It doesn't hurt that it's strategically located in the shadow of Union Station, across the street from the Federal Judiciary Building, kitty-corner to Station Place, the largest office building in Washington DC, and it forms the northwest corner of the Capitol Hill Historic District. Now here is the amazing thing. Right after purchasing the property, four different neighbors told me that they had offered more money than we did. I'm neither a real estate agent nor the son of a real estate agent, but don't you typically sell to the highest bidder? The only explanation I have is the favor of God. God had his hand on that property and he wouldn't allow anyone else to purchase it. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We underestimate how much spiritual authority we have when we pray in accordance with the will of God. The word bind means to prohibit or to fasten with chains. When we exercised our spiritual authority in prayer and laid hands on that property, it was like our prayers put a spiritual chain link fence around 201 F Street Northeast, and God prohibited anyone from buying it for more than two decades. In fact, I met a neighbor not long after our coffee house was opened who said, if it weren't for me, you wouldn't have a coffee house. He went on to explain that he has lived in the neighborhood for more than 25 years and back in the 1980s when the former owners of the property applied for a demolition permit, this neighbor stopped them. He went to the Historic Preservation Society and got the property deemed a historic property. And if he hadn't done what he did, a fast food chain or a dry cleaner would have snapped up the property before we even moved into the neighborhood. Long before the dream of building a coffee house was even conceived, God had a contract on that property.